Hi, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Bill Ayers, the former Weather Underground uh, member, who's now an education professor at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. It's his second appearance uh, on the show. Uh, welcome, Bill. Welcome, Bill. Yes, hello. How are you? Oh, good, good. Uh, I wanted to ask you first, actually, about... <clears throat> What kind of advice you would have for Obama about education policy, even though he said he wasn't going to use you as an advisor? Well, um, you know, I think that many, many people who were fascinated with the election are now suffering a kind of postpartum depression. That is, we don't have any polls to read, so we're busy kind of imagining what the uh, president-elect is thinking and worrying about his appointments and so on. I don't think the important thing is to focus on the president-elect or the new administration exclusively. I think we should focus on ourselves. And in my view, in education, what we need to do, all of us who are concerned, teachers, students, academics, but citizens in general, we need to change the framework around which we discuss education. Education has been thought of for the last decades as a commodity, something to be bought and sold, something that functions well under a market metaphor. Um, and education has been thought of it as a kind of a, a zero-sum game. That is, if some get more, others get less. And that is fundamentally wrong. Um, in my view, we have to reframe the discussion and ask ourselves a couple of fundamental questions. First, what distinguishes education in a democracy from education in any other type of social order. And I would argue that even though in the old Soviet Union, in fascist Germany, in medieval Saudi Arabia, and in the United States, we agree that children should not do drugs. We agree that they should show up on time. We agree that they should learn their subject matters. But where we might disagree is that in a democracy, the incalculable value of every individual human being is taken as a given. And that means in a democracy, we don't teach obedience and conformity. We teach, rather, imagination, initiative, courage. So we can look at our own schools and ask ourselves, how are we doing as a democratic school system? Are we living up to the ideal that the full development of each individual de depends on the full development of every individual? And I would say we're falling short, but that's the conversation we ought to be in, not a conversation about the market or about closing schools or about beating down the teachers' unions. Those are false discussions and take us in the wrong direction. Yeah, because the, most of the uh, public commentary has been whether or not the new Secretary of Education would be pro or against unions. Well, that's what I mean. The, the, the framing of that discussion as a, uh, as a discussion about unions or a discussion about kind of private enterprise strikes me as going so much in the wrong direction. And I think we waste a lot of energy if we sit here reading the tea leaves and trying to figure out who Obama might appoint. The fact is that it's in our hands to change that discussion. I don't mean ours in the broadest sense. We don't have to concede that the discussion is all about the commodification of this thing called education. Just as in foreign policy, it's not so much a matter of kind of worrying about um, who's the secretary of of, of, uh, of state or who's the Secretary of Defense, whether we ourselves should take up the conversation and insist that 
our foreign policy should be based not on military might, not on the threat to invade other countries, but rather on justice. A based on justice is far from our minds, and yet it's what we ought to insist on, and we can insist on it no matter who the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense is. Similarly, in education, we need to be wiser and better than we've been, and we don't have to wait for the leader to tell us or the leader to kind of create the conditions for something better. Rather, and, and this, again, goes to the heart of what it means to live in a democracy. We don't have a ruler. We have an elected leader. That elected leader is also a citizen. That citizen should respond to other citizens. So it's up to us not to be saved by the new president, but rather to save ourselves and in the process give his administration a chance to really be something that's progressive and hopeful. Uh, you almost sound like uh, you're an advocate of... Uh changing the whole system so it's is it like a de-schooling effort so that we start over again I'm not I'm not uh, I do think the system needs to be changed but I don't know that I'd identify myself as de-schooling although I do find Ivan Illich's writing provocative and interesting now I think that what we don't need is schools for obedience and conformity that's what they have in places like Saudi Arabia and other authoritarian cultures and countries, what we do need is education for citizenship, and that means an education that, that asks students and teachers and citizens to ask questions of the world, not to accept the world as given, but to challenge it, to criticize it, to wonder about it. We don't simply kind of take in curriculum, rather we look at the world and we interrogate it, and that's true on every level, on the level of science, on the level of math, on the level of, you know, um, social studies and English literature so uh, and the arts. So the point is not um, that I want to start over, but I do think that the, that the system needs a fundamental restructuring from top to bottom. And when I say the system, I don't just mean the education system. I mean our political, our social system, just as Martin Luther King called for. We need a revolution in values, a revolution that puts us more closely in touch with other human beings and less, you know, um, thinking that we can lord it over everybody. That's not democracy. You know, the the right wing has hijacked this debate on values and uh, being seen as a proponent of traditional values. Well, I don't know if they've hijacked it. I think that these things are all contested. I think the question of what values we want to live under is, is contested. Certainly the last eight years is a, is a uh, demonstration of what the right-wing ideological values look like. And what they look like is fierce individualism, fierce kind of competition, um, no, no role for government except around military matters. And that, it seems to me, is catastrophic. Um, every government, every government in the world taxes and spends. And what we've seen in the last eight years is our country run into the ground economically, militarily, in terms of its place in the world, it's been run into the ground by an ideology that says tax everybody but the rich and spend on nothing but military and incarceration and surveillance. That's catastrophic. What we should be arguing back at that ideology is that we need to spend on education, health care, guaranteed lifetime incomes, and we need to get away from militarism, surveillance, incarceration as the wrong direction for a democracy. You've you also been a uh, proponent of transformative 
education, uh, like uh, including social justice issues in education? I am, but I think of social justice uh, in, you know, in very much the ways I was talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, social justice education, of course, is central to um, a democracy. It's not an add-on to the curriculum. Rather, social justice is at the heart of education, and what it means is everyone has equal access. There's equity uh, in teaching and learning and access to teaching and learning, and there's full recognition of the humanity of each person who walks through the schoolhouse door, full recognition of that person's innate, decent humanity. So we assume that everyone who comes to school is valuable and a person of values by simply showing up. It's our job then to teach them, to take, you know, to um, take them from uh, to deeper and wider ways of knowing. But that involves a journey that we ourselves as teachers are on. So yes, social justice is at the heart of what I think needs to happen, but not as a kind of additional something like, you know, a course or something. Rather, it's at the heart of what it means to educate in a democracy. So it's not, it's not additive, I guess. It's not at all additive. It's central. And so we can use the language of social justice, but we use it in the center of our conversation about curriculum and teaching, not as something that we're going to put a course in the curriculum, for example. Do, do you feel that uh, homeschooling then is wrong? I don't know. I don't, I, nothing I said implies that, but I do think that what we need is um, a robust, well-funded, well-financed, uh, equitable free, common public school system. We need that. And if people choose not to participate, that's up to them. But if we had a free, accessible, critical, thoughtful, um, you know, uh, multidimensional public education, most people would opt into that because it would serve the lives of their children. Do you think it's wrong then to base uh, school funding on uh, real estate? Absolutely. It's absolutely wrong. Because what it means is that in a place like Chicago, where I live, it means that people who are wealthy get to go to schools, get to send their children to schools where, you know, the average the, the spending is say uh, twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars per child per year, whereas in the poorer neighborhoods it's closer to six, seven, eight thousand dollars per child per year. In a democracy, that's an absolutely immoral situation. In a democracy, we assume that what the wisest and most privileged parent wants for his or her child, that's what we as a society want for all of our children, because they are all of our children. Do you, do you feel that um, Obama shares some of your values? I have no idea. You'd have <laughs> to ask him. Uh, uh, but I mean, given, given that um, you both came from the Hyde Park community, well, I mean, look, I think that anybody who has paid any attention to his career and to his, um, and to his rise would, or, or anyone who knew him even casually would say that he is one of the smartest people uh, who walks into any room he walks into. Secondly, that he's a very decent and compassionate person. And third, he's an ambitious politician. I think that one of the things he said during the campaign that we should all keep in mind is that when he was asked who Martin Luther King would support in the election, he was asked this during the primaries, and uh, 
His response was, Martin Luther King wouldn't endorse any of us. He'd be in the streets demanding justice. That seems to me just about right, that if we want progressive change, if we want a world at peace and in balance, if we want to save the environment, if we want the economy to flourish, if we want education to be sparkling and bright and decent, then we have to demand it ourselves. We have to build a movement that, that sees those things as possible, not just figments of our imagination. And it seems to me that kind of movement building is what's called for in this era of yes, we can. We're done, I think. We're done with the era of fear and the politics of fear, violence and the politics of violence, war and invasion and occupation as the pillars of our national identity. We should turn the page on that, and we should say, along with the president-elect, yes, we can, and then we should add, yes, we can, what? And we should fill in the what. So they should, the movement should continue and put pressure on the, on the government. Well, I, what I'm arguing actually is a little different than that. I'm saying, of course, there should be social movements for progressive change and for peace, and those movements should look for ways to unite with one another so we should be able to see as we move forward that war is linked to warming, that war and warming are linked to, to outrageous profit-making schemes, that outrageous profit-making schemes are linked to the shredding of our civil liberties, and that the shredding of our civil liberties is linked to the scapegoating of gay and lesbian and transgendered and bisexual people. In other words, we should see that the issues are linked. We should build a powerful movement. And, and that movement should do two things simultaneously. Yes, it should put a press on government. It should make a demand on government. But as important, and maybe perhaps even more important, is it should put a demand on ourselves. And the reason is, as Eugene Debs, the great labor leader, said at the turn of the last century in Chicago, he said to a group of workers, if I could lead you into the promised land, I would not do it because someone else would come along and lead you out. If you want to get to the promised land, you have to get there yourself. And that seems to me also just about right. If we want a decent, democratic, peace-loving, balanced society, we have to insist on it in ourselves. We don't wait for government to give it to us. We demand it of government, and we transform ourselves simultaneously. So what is preventing us from having wonderful, outrageously great, humane and decent schools in this corner of this city, for example? What's preventing us? What's preventing us is our own lack of imagination. What's pre preventing the workers at Republic Window in Chicago from getting their just dues at the end of the day. You may remember this from last week. Yeah. They decided not to wait for the government or the law or anyone else to catch up with them. They sat in and took control of their plant. This is happening all over the country. The workers are saying, you can't produce it and keep in business? Fine, we'll produce it. And it's that self-actualization, that self-transformation that's as important in any revolutionary struggle as a press on government. It's direct action in a way. Well, direct action's part of it, but seeing the direct action as not simply begging. I don't want to beg the government to get it right. 
I want to press through direct action myself getting it right. I can give you lots of examples, but just to take one, can we demand in a, in a city like Chicago, in a neighborhood um, that is poor and underserved in terms of criminal justice, can we demand justice both as a press on government and also through the creation of, of um, community panels uh, where we where we really practice restorative justice, so that if somebody breaks the window of my car, and we catch that young man who did it, we go to a panel where we talk about how to restore the harm that he caused, rather than waiting for the criminal justice system to capture this kid, to demonize this kid, to give him a, a criminal record. Rather, we work together to restore this kid his proper place in society. That's taking action on your own behalf. That's creating democracy in the streets. That is direct action, but it's direct action on ourselves as well as on the government. You're saying that all politics is really local then? <laughs> Not all politics, but certainly without local politics, we can't really participate in the other. What I'm really saying is that we need to stop obsessing about what the government can do for us and as we make a press on government, we should be obsessing about how we change ourselves and our relationships to one another and to schooling and to production and to health and to foreign policy in order to be worthy of a peaceful, just, and balanced world. Is that, I mean, that seems more feasible in a small town atmosphere. And America is so big. So do you envision a lot of these uh, small gatherings happening? Well, Absolutely. I mean, it's true that the United States is big. It's also true that democracy is a participatory affair. You can't have democracy without participation. So the idea that simply walking into a voting booth and clicking a switch, you've done your job for democracy, <laughs> is a myth. Right. And, and it's not only is that a myth, but it leads us in the wrong direction in a lot of ways. For example, during the presidential campaign, Troy Davis was scheduled to be executed in Georgia. Yeah. The activists who prevented that execution never went to sleep, and they never said, oh, well, it's time for us to get involved in electoral politics. We can't be activists against the death penalty anymore. They didn't say that. They kept pressing the demand for, his, uh, uh, you know, for him to be not executed. And in pressing that demand, they saved his life more than once during the, uh, during the presidential campaign. Well, let's learn a lesson from that. And it's true. Democracy, because it's participatory, is local. It also is messy. What we need, for example, if we want to change our schools nationwide, we need a large, rambling, chaotic, messy, democratic discussion that goes on for months and months in every neighborhood and every community in which we really hammer out what kind of schooling we think is best for our children, for our future. And it would not be the schooling that we give kids in a city like Chicago, especially the poor and the marginalized kids who get a lousy education and get tracked into the military and the prisons as the only alternative. That's unjust, that's unfair, that's not democratic. Another problem is a lot of the kids in school now, especially in California and the Southwest, uh, are children of undocumented uh, people, and so they are at risk in the sense that even if they are allowed to go to college, they uh, end up with a college degree without a job, without the, a legal job. 
Well, this is another. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, how would you, how would you? I mean, how would you involve people that are not citizens, uh, the parents, for instance, who are undocumented? How would you involve in them in this debate about schooling? Well, here's another area where we need fundamental rethinking. The idea of illegal immigrants, the idea of illegal aliens, um, is foreign to uh, to my way of thinking. If you allow capital to cross borders without any um, <laughs> without any uh, uh, inhibition whatsoever, but you restrict labor, then there's something unjust there. What I would argue right away, we could do it right away, is amnesty for every child involved in this whole immigration uh, nightmare, um, this whole kind of political conflict. Absolute amnesty, immediate amnesty for anyone under 21. And let's go forward and educate the people who are before us. We don't have to be so selfish. We don't have to be so narrow. We can note, I mean, one of the things about education, and I argued earlier that it's not a commodity, it's not a zero-sum game. One of the things that's wonderful about education is if you give it away, you don't lose anything. If you give it to other people, you don't diminish yourself in the least. Education is free. Education, real education, is liberating, and it's enlightening. And it seems to me that we ought to get away from the idea that we're going to fight out this very narrow, chauvinistic, jingoistic immigration debate on the heads of children. We should not. We should not fight it out on the heads of people who are sick or ill. We should demand fairness, justice, equity in our labor laws, in our labor policies, but most certainly in our education. So the answer isn't going to come from Obama. I don't think so. I think the answer comes from the bottom up. Look, let's look back at history. Lyndon Johnson passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation in history, but he was not a civil rights leader. He wasn't a member of the civil rights movement. Franklin Roosevelt passed the most far-reaching labor legislation. He was not in the labor movement. And Abraham Lincoln did not belong to an abolitionist party. Let's remember that, because something happened to make those three presidents rise up in our minds as people of tremendous accomplishment. But they accomplished what they accomplished because of changes on the ground. It's up to us to make those changes on the ground palpable, solid, large, and irresistible. Uh, we're talking with Bill Ayers. Uh, this is Subversity on KUCI. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, uh, I was going to ask you just uh, to reflect back on uh, this whole political campaign. Uh, did you feel shocked that you became a uh, center of national attention? You know, I didn't pay much attention to it. I don't watch television, and I'm old enough to know that the creation of a cartoon character who had my name and bore some likeness to me was not me. So I got up pretty much every morning and did the work that I always do. And I tried to ignore it, and I mostly did ignore it. Uh, I decided early on that I wouldn't comment on it um, as it kind of swirled into this larger and larger campaign because I felt there was no way that I could enter the 30-second soundbite culture and make any sense of it. The narrative about me and about my relationship with Senator Obama was so profoundly dishonest that I felt the best thing to do would be to just be quiet. And so I was quiet. And one of the delicious ironies of the election was 
I don't know who thinks these things up. <laughs> whatever, whatever Republican operative thought up the idea of making me into a devil and then somehow making Obama's association with me and with Reverend Wright and with Rashid Khalidi and others somehow his responsibility. Um, it didn't work, and whoever thought it up ought to be kind of um, ashamed today because every time my name was mentioned, which was a lot, it turned out Obama's poll numbers didn't go down. Rather, McCain-Palin went down. So that was a great thing. Why the do you American think? People, well, I don't know why, except yeah. I think young people um, weren't particularly interested in refighting the Vietnam War. Um, I think that that's mostly good. I think the bad part about that is... As a, com as a country, as a culture, we have not learned the lessons of Vietnam. We really ought to have a truth and reconciliation process sure. at some point. But, but in any case, I think young people weren't interested. And I think the American people, the, the electorate certainly, or the majority of the electorate, was exhausted by eight years of fear and panic and pandering and felt like if all the McCain-Palin people can do is raise questions about who Obama had coffee with. Well, they're hardly offering us anything to look forward to. So I think that's what happened, and I think it's a tribute to the American people that at least this time they rejected guilt by association, and at least this time they said if a political candidate has conversations with a wide range of people and retains a mind of his own, that's not a sin. That's actually a virtue. So let's hope that that's the lesson. The right wing was especially upset uh, about uh, your comments last time you were on subversity, uh, and then a week later you met with Obama at some academic conference, and so they were saying that uh, he knew you were, you know, this type of person. I, I'm not sure what I didn't understand. What comment did I make? I'm sorry. You on my show you had said last time, back uh -huh. in 2002 when your book came out, uh, right. after your book came out, uh, Fugitive Days, you had. Uh, indicated that you were as much an anarchist as a Marxist, and the right wing went crazy over the anarchist comment. Oh, I see. And then they they found some evidence, I guess, uh, some document that said you were, actually a week after my interview with you, you were at a University of Illinois or somewhere uh, on a panel <coughs> on intellectuals with, uh, on public oh, intellectuals right. with yeah. uh, Obama. And yeah. on the show you had said that you were a public person and people knew where you stood. So they're saying, well, Obama knew you were this anarchist. And In other words, yeah. they assume that Obama tunes into your show every day. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a broad assumption. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's true. One could hope that he does. Um, but, look, that's a good example of what I'm talking about, because he and I appear on a panel together. Right. Does that actually mean that he endorses something that I said on your show? How would he even know about that, and if he did know, uh, you know, the, uh, something about my politics and so on, why should appearing on a panel be an endorsement of those politics? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't. I appeared on the panel with him. Do I endorse his politics? Uh, yeah, I, don't even, I don't even know. I don't even know if I knew at that point what some of his political positions were. I mean, I'm sure I didn't. But does it mean if I show up to give a talk on a panel that I have to endorse it? That's the kind of insanity that's so profoundly undemocratic. If you have to have a political litmus test for everyone you have a conversation with or for everyone you go on a panel with or everyone you sit on a bus with, that means that you don't have 
merely the opportunity to hear the range of opinions that exist in this wildly diverse democracy or, you know, really get down with who, who really sees the world profoundly differently than you do. I think one of the great things about this particular election, not only was it a blow against white supremacy, not a fatal blow, but an important step against white supremacy. And not only was it a shift in generation so that a younger, smarter generation could take leadership in this country, but also important was the fact that this is a man who was a community organizer not so long ago, which means he's actually been in poor neighborhoods. He's actually spoken to poor people. He's actually knocked on the doors of people who are in distress in this country. Could you imagine George Bush or John McCain or Sarah Palin knocking on the door of a poor person on the west side of Chicago? It just defies imagination. The fact that we have a president who's done that is a good thing. Does it guarantee anything? Absolutely not. But it does open space where you and I and the people who listen to your show can begin to answer the question, yes, we can. Yes, we can what? Let's do it. We had a guest uh, called Dylan Rodriguez, who is a professor at UC Riverside, and he was worried that the prison uh, industrial complex would still continue, of course, under the new administration. That well, nothing of much course will it will. Yeah, of but, course it will. Yeah. Of course it will. The, the, what will change it is if we build a movement first against the death penalty, which is, there's a big and growing movement that sees the barbarity of that. Secondly, there's a big and growing movement against the prison industrial complex. There's an abolitionist movement in the land today. Let's get some energy and focus on that and not wring our hands about whether Obama will bring us that change. But let's insist that that change will come because we ourselves can make it happen. We can make it happen through education. We can make it happen by convincing people that this is a powerful waste of money, of resources, and that it's going to bankrupt the the state governments even worse than they're already bankrupt. Why do we spend $46,000 per prisoner in a place like San Quentin? Are those guys getting $46,000 worth of health care? Are they getting $46,000 worth of food? Are they getting $46,000 worth of education? I think not. Why are we spending that money? We should end it. It's madness. It's uh, partly this, the problem is uh, this kind of uh, privatization of prisons too, right? I mean, everything well, I think is, that's part of it. Yeah. That is part of it, the privatization of everything. Everything, yeah. And, and the problem with that is we have to ask ourselves, again, this is a large reframing discussion that needs to happen because the argument has been won uh, by the right wing that everything that the private market is always better. But stop and think about it. Are there, is there nothing that's part of the public good? Of course, there's much that's part of the public good. For example, the air we breathe, water we drink, garbage pickup, public safety. These are things that are public goods, and therefore the public has to have a stake in them. Well, similarly, education, health care, decent jobs, decent wages are public goods. We ought to have the public involved in that. And certainly, in a democracy, if you choose to lock up some of your federal, some of your, some of your uh, fellow citizens, 
if you choose to lock them up, to incarcerate them, you have a responsibility not to give that to some private entity, but to take responsibility as a public for public safety. And if we decide as a public to incarcerate some people, let it be done by the public. But I think as a public, we don't want 2.1 million of our fellow citizens in prison, mostly for nonviolent offenses. It's outrageous, and I think it has to change. But I don't think we should sit around wondering if the new administration will change it. We have to demand that it be changed. We have to change it ourselves. So what what should we demand with uh, this bailout of the banks? Is it national? Is it really nationalization of the banks? Well, of course, it's socialism for the rich, um, as for always. Rich, yeah. uh, but what we what we should demand is a massive federal bailout of the public school system, a massive federal bailout of the healthcare system. This is what we need. We need public access to education. We need public full access. To well-being and health, and these are the kinds of things we should insist on. This bailing out of the banks and bailing out of uh, Wall Street is outrageous. Now, the technical aspects of what the next steps are, I can't tell you. I don't know, but I do know that our orientation for all these decades has been: if it's good for rich people, it'll be good for all of us. That way of thinking, that dominant discourse, means that. Shipping plants overseas, if it's good for the rich, it's good for us. If you ta- cut taxes for the rich, well, if it's good for the rich, it's good for us. I think we have a moment here where we can see that what's good for the rich is not necessarily good for us. And we should insist that what's good for ordinary people, for working people, is what we need to power the country forward. Are you seeing an opportunity for revolutionary change without violence, then? Well, I, I, I have no idea. One hopes, you know, one hopes that this is a moment when both the, uh, the, the sense of yes, we can, the sense of rising expectations, the catastrophic economic situation, but, and, and, and the international situation, which incidentally is more than the fact that we're involved in two uh, unpopular and unjust wars. It's more than that. It's that the United States, in the next period, in the next period, I mean the next decades, it's going to have to figure out how to be a nation among nations, not the uber nation, not the, the police officer of the world, but rather a country like other countries, conversation, dialogue, negotiation. That is a profound change, and one hopes that the American people can see the value in that, and through our own self-activity and as well as our own pressure, can see to it that the new administration find a way to locate us, not as a warmonger, but as a nation among nations. Part of the financial scandals have uh, caused a lot of countries not to see the U.S. as the leader uh, in uh, in this area now. Absolutely, and that's that's correct. We are not necessarily the leader. We certainly aren't free of. Uh, the community of nations, even though we've acted as if we are the one and only. It's not true. We're less than 5% of the world's population. If we're going to live in peace, if we're going to live in balance, we have to figure out how to be fair and how to be just in this world. For sure.
Yeah. I'm going to have to yeah. run, but okay. I... Thank you very much, Bill Evans. I appreciate your calling, and, oh, yeah. and uh, we'll good luck on your show. And we'll keep in touch. We'll talk okay. again soon. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Bill Ayers, uh former Weather Underground uh, member and Prairie Fire uh, theoretician. Prairie Fire was a, a document that was put out uh, when he was underground and now a professor of education at University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, we'll take a break. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.